This week on Life and Faith. Sometime right after you get married, you wake up and you go, I have now committed to be with this person for life. And then your next reaction is, (laughs) (laughs) don't be surprised you have that reaction. It's a perfectly normal reaction. It's just hit you, the commitment that you've made. It's just too hard. It would be easier to just go back to work tomorrow. And those were days when it wasn't dangerous at all to pick up hitchhikers. It's pretty clear that something wasn't quite right. He almost becomes a student of death. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. I'm Justine Toe. And I'm Natasha Moore. And today's episode on Life and Faith is all about marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Skip to the end. Have you the wing? Man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. Now, if you have no idea what that was, then you really need to see The Princess Bride immediately. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. And that is a really classic wedding scene where Peter Cook plays the role of, and this is his actual title, The Impressive Clergyman. (laughs) Yes, today's episode is about marriage. (laughs) Um, We've actually never done an episode on marriage over many years of life and faith. And now seemed like just the right moment to plug that gap, given that, Natasha, you are about to be married. Yes, it approaches rapidly. How's that all going? (laughs) Oh, you know, depends which day you ask me. There are still (laughs) many, many things to do. Um, I mean, I'm glad we're doing this episode because, you know, there are many wedding tasks to tick (laughs) off. But... Um, In terms of the actual marriage and being married thing, it has been occurring to me how much of what I see and read online in articles and stuff about marriage is actually quite negative. Like not negative as in, oh, marriage is bad, don't do it, but a lot about how, oh, this is just really hard. Um, It's kind of a slog. Um, It's complicated. And for this episode, I was thinking about in the early days of COVID, a story that um, I remember reading about the end of lockdown, that first lockdown in Wuhan, um, where people emerged from their isolation. And the number of couples who filed for divorce immediately, there was this massive spike in that. Um, which is yeah. kind of depressing, depressing that when people yeah. spent time together, forced time together, oh, I that was you. the outcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I also, I remember seeing the opposite story as well come out in the various lockdowns that people who um, were struggling in their marriages kind of reconnected and rediscovered their love for each other during lockdown. Yes, yeah, so we want to look at not just getting married, but staying married. That's and the goal. we hope this will be an encouragement to you, Natasha, <laughs> and, and others. And we're going to talk to some experts about this. So a counsellor who's been working with couples as well as individuals for 25 years, Lisa Aitken. She's also a CPX fellow. And if you're a regular listener, you might find her voice familiar. Yeah, and we also thought that we would hear from someone who's been married for nearly half a century Daryl Bock, Simon talked to him. He's a New Testament scholar. They talked about life, death, the universe, everything um, for a recent episode. But we also thought we would grill him about how he's managed to stay married all this time. 
So here's Lisa with her accumulated wisdom on marriage from all the couples that she's worked with. She had a couple of caveats to start with. Well, Natasha, since you are getting married very soon, I thought the way I'd frame this was give a version of a speech that I gave at a family member's wedding. It's always risky, isn't it, if you ask someone to give a wedding speech and they're a marriage counsellor. <laughs> so <laughs> the poor couple got my, it was my distilled version of what are the really important things that I would want to say to a newly married couple. I just want to add before I launch in that this is for Couples where there's well-meaning, uh, both parties are well-meaning and respectful. This is not the conversation I have where there's abuse in a relationship. Obviously, I deal with that a fair bit. But this is for couples who are getting on and it's safe and they're okay in that sense. So in my wedding talk, what I did was I used the acronym GROW, G-R-O-W. That stands for gratitude, respect, own your own stuff, and what is the purpose of marriage? Genius idea, really, having a marriage counsellor give a speech at your wedding. Yes, it's a bit preemptive counselling. Um, <laughs> and I also find myself like craning in or leaning in to mm. hear what she has to say. Let's hear it. So the first one is gratitude, which is so easy when you first get together with someone. You're just so blown over by how wonderful they are. But over years and over decades, what starts to creep in in marriages is criticism. John Gottman is a really amazing married researcher. He's a statistician as well as a psychologist. And he talks about building a culture of appreciation in a marriage where you actually articulate what you appreciate in the other person. So easy to criticize. It takes no skill, no wisdom, no thought. It's just human nature we do it. But it does take thoughtfulness and skill and a bit of wisdom to actually speak up what you're grateful for. But it's so important for a long-term relationship to remember that. So G for gratitude. Next is R, respect. Now Gottman, being the statistician that he is, was interested in what is the number one predictor of divorce. And he came out with the evidence was that it was contempt. So lack of respect. So what I see in my counselling is couples where they mock each other. They're sarcastic. They're rolling their eyes. All those things are a sign of lack of respect. And I say to couples all the time, think about how you treat a really valued co-worker. And don't let your standard at home drop below that. If you wouldn't do that at work, don't do it at home, which sort of sounds a bit odd in a way that we treat those we work with better than those that we're married to, but <laughs> it's often how it goes. And respect is deeper than just that sort of etiquette. It's also about remembering that the other person is separate from you. Because over years, when you're married to someone, it's almost like you start to fuse together to become this one person. And you start to see the other as almost like an extension of yourself and you lose the boundary for where you end and they begin. And it means you start to take lots of liberties with how you treat them. So one of the big paradoxes of staying married is to treat this other person as a really a separate human being, to stay curious about them. And the more that you differentiate in that way, paradoxically, the more you can stay respectful and therefore grow closer. So respect is about language and tone, but it's also about something much more fundamental about keeping differentiated as people. 
So we often talk about losing the emotional fusion. Okay, I'm taking notes here. What's the O? So the O is own your own stuff. Now, this is one where if I had a dollar for every time I had said to people, they're sitting down, they're in their marriage counselling seats and they sit there and the wife says, we would be fine in marriage if only my husband stopped doing blah, blah, blah or did blah, blah, blah. And then he says, well, no, I'd be fine if only she stopped doing blah, blah, blah or did whatever it is. And I sit there and I say to them, you cannot change the other person. That's not how this works. You can work on yourself. You are the only person you can control. And I know we know the theory of that. But when you're living with someone year in, year out, it's really easy to start to think, no, if only they change. And of course, you've got a right, you've got every right to put your hand up and say, look, when you do this, this is the impact on me. This is how it makes me feel. But mostly by the time people come to marriage counselling, they know what's bugging the other person about their behaviour. Either they've decided they don't want to change it or they feel like they can't. You know, it's part of their personality. It runs so deep. So it's not about just constantly repeating, I need you to change, I need you to change. You have to look at yourself and go, what do I need to change? What can I do about this? So when people sit down to do marriage counselling, the first thing I do is I draw both of their family trees. We get parents, we get grandparents, we get great-grandparents. And I ask them about patterns. How did your parents handle conflict? You know, how did they respond once kids came along? All this sort of information. And we're all triggered by different things. We all get reactive. And to look at ourselves and go, gosh, what do I do? There's two basic things people do. We either withdraw or we attack, <laughs> you know, when things get tricky. So do I withdraw? Do I not raise issues and just distance when there's problems? Do I disappear off and eat chocolate and read a book or watch TV? <laughs> Do I triangle? Do I end up complaining about my spouse to someone else? Which of course is tricky. That's how affairs start half the time, isn't it? You don't keep the issue in the relationship in which it belongs. In this case, it's in the marriage. You go off to someone else. Even in marriage counselling, you have to be careful Sometimes if individuals come to counselling and what they actually want to do is sit there and complain about their spouse, then I'm actually making things worse. I need both people in, keep it in the relationship where the problem is. But triangling can be people over-focus on work or on children where they don't, it's too scary to address the issue in the relationship so they distance and withdraw and we're very creative in how we <laughs> distance and withdraw. Others go for the jugular and launch in on a big intense emotional attack. And of course, neither of those are super helpful, staying calm and having good conversations. And sometimes you need help to shift some of those dynamics to do that. So that's part of owning the stuff is owning your own triggers and often they do run deep. But the other part is owning who do you want to be in this relationship? I ask myself this all the time. I've been married 30 years this year and probably the last 20 I've spent asking myself come on Lisa just because my husband is doing xyz which bugs me or annoys me or whatever it is who do you want to be if you want to be loving and supportive and kind and have good boundaries that's on me I've got to own my part 
So I, I say that to people all the time. How are you going to just focus on your values? And after we do the family tree in the very first relationship counselling session, the next question is, who do you want to be as a wife? Who do you want to be as a husband? How are we going to hold those? What matters is, are you living this person you want to be, not are you reacting to the other? So gratitude, respect, owning your own stuff. And the W for grow is what is the purpose of marriage? Because a lot of people have not thought about this. I've asked hundreds of couples this question because it's going to set your expectations, isn't it? Like why get married in the first place? And um, they sort of roughly run into four groups. So some people say, well, I got married to make myself happy. I thought it would bring me joy, which is problematic. And then you hope, of course, that your marriage will bring you some joy. But there is no way in the world with two imperfect, fragile people, it is always going to be happy. And so I don't give those sort of marriages very long. They don't tend to last very long. Setting a feeling state as a goal for anything big in life is not particularly safe. <laughs> so other people would say, well, it's a place for personal growth. I'm going to learn about myself. I'm going to learn how to love someone else and I'm going to help my partner do this. And they see marriage as like a crucible, you know, a container where you've got the fire that's burning out the molten metal and getting rid of the dross and you've got something purer at the end. Much more realistic than the first. There's going to be fiery times. It's inevitable. But it still is a sort of an individual focus. I'm in this for growth. But it does connect with that who do I want to be, even if the other person is... There's difficult stuff happening. I'm going to focus on that. Some focus more on, well, I want to have a family or this is part of having a stable relationship in a community of people and they sort of broaden it out, which is, I don't know, are you getting married in a church or with a church service? We are getting married in a church, yep. yep, yep. Mm -hmm. So For better, uh, for worse. For that's right. For <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, the Anglican service has three things in it which tells the purpose of marriage. It says, one, it's for companionship. It talks about help and comfort, which I think is really beautiful. But the second thing it says, it's a right and a safe place for a sexual relationship. And the third thing, it is the best place to raise children. Now, those two are pretty contested in society at the moment as purposes of marriage. I'm experiencing this increasingly of people who are suspicious of anything that sounds too traditional and especially church tradition and they think, oh, it must be oppressive by definition, which I don't think it is at all. And once you start taking away some of those traditional norms and put in their place, my personal sort of authenticity is my determining factor. It gets very complicated and it gets very messy. But nonetheless, some people say, that they see marriage as a stable place for family or a stable place for community. But it's even in the last 20 years, it's become much more contested, all those issues. The last group would be the Christians who say something which I think is quite, sort of sounds odd in a way, but it's also quite poetic and quite beautiful, who would say that marriage is a metaphor, that it's a microcosm of something that's at really the beating heart of the cosmos, which is God creator of humans and his commitment to humans. And 
that he sees us at our worst as well as at our best, but he's always aiming for our best. And that those three aspects within a marriage of a commitment, of being vulnerable, of seeing each other at our worst, going through hard times, but trying to work for each other's best, that what we have in marriage, and the Bible talks about this, is this metaphor of a much bigger relationship of God and people. Of course, it's easy for God to do that commitment to us. It's harder for us to do that to each other. We're fragile. We bring a lot of baggage. And sometimes the reality is for me that in doing relationship counselling, there's too much water under the bridge for couples. There's too much hurt. And the best thing I can do is help them separate well, separate respectfully, separate while still living out their values sometimes that just happens because we're imperfect people and it's just how it is but having said that I always think of the couples that have been married for 50 years and they have stuck it through <laughs> hard times and easy times and they've been faithful and they've worked out how to bring the best out in each other and there is something profound and really special about that and I think it's profound and special because it does resonate with something much bigger that's going on in the universe which is about God's commitment to us as humans. That's my hope for you Natasha that you get the 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to Life and Faith and this episode is all about staying married for those who are. Now it strikes me that these principles apply not only to married people, but all sorts of relationships. Now, it's easy to think of marriage as the norm, though actually only 60% of Australians are either married or partnered. So couples, while yes, they're the majority, they aren't by much. It just feels that way, though, let's be honest, because... <laughs> Have you guys heard of this term smug marrieds? It's like, <laughs> oh, it yes. feels so good that they're coupled up and it just <laughs> takes up all the air in the room. The number of people who have said to me over the years, oh, marriage, I really recommend it. <laughs> like, Ugh. You realise it's not just I'll a get pill right that you on can that. take, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, you know, as a until recently confirmed spinster, um, can confirm <laughs> the smug married thing. <laughs> However, I am going to, you know, now that I am entering this state of apparent wedded bliss, I'm going to ask you both for your best piece of married advice, smug or otherwise. Um, I mean, no pressure after hearing from the marriage counsellor with 25 years experience. Um, lived experience is important as well. But let's hear Daryl Bock's story first. You spoke with him, Simon. Yes, he's a friend of CPX like Lisa. He was back in Australia recently from Texas, where he's a New Testament scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he came into the studio to talk about heaps of stuff, his life, his career, the Bible. But Natasha, I also snuck in a few questions for your benefit. Very considerate of you. So, Daryl Bock, you've been married to Sally for 46 years. 46 plus. I want credit for every day. <laughs> well, well, congratulations. <laughs> Tell us, cast your mind back, how did you meet and what was that like? Okay, well, this is actually a crazy story. So, my senior year in high school, I was dating another girl, and there was a pack of friends of which Sally was a part. And uh, in the back of my mind, I said, 
If I break up with the girl I'm dating, the first person I will ask out afterwards is Sally. So I had her marked out. I'm always thinking in the future. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm you not know, sure how yeah, that girlfriend would have thought about that. Yeah, well, she didn't know, you know. <laughs> and so I, I had this plan in the back of my head that was the backup plan. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of my senior year, we ended up breaking up. And so the first thing I did was to ask Sally out. And we went out on a date. I hope you left it a day no, or two. No, it was almost immediately. It was amazing <laughs> how quickly a turnaround is. You know, I believe in a quick recovery. And... uh the irony is, is that our first date happened to be to a wedding of one of the sisters of the friend in this pack. And then we went out to a baseball game second because sports oh, matters. Yeah. yeah okay. Good. Got to test and see. Test the water. What, exactly right. See what mm-hmm. she thinks about sport, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you could have been deceived like I was <laughs> by my wife who pretended to like <laughs> rugby league <laughs> until we got married. There's no pretense after that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, once you say I do, it's all over. You know that. <laughs> well, I mean, sure yeah, Sally every, every, everything that was protected, okay, now becomes exposed. Yes. But anyway, so we went out and I promptly told her that at the time that she was number three on my list. Okay. (laughs) Which probably was not a great move. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So, um, but we stuck it out. Uh, she was a year behind me in school. So I went to SMU in Dallas and she was in her final year of high school in Houston. I used to drive down every weekend to see her. Um, that's when you wrote a thing called letters. You remember yeah, what those yeah, I were? I remember those. Okay, yeah. all right. They came with uh, envelopes yeah. that had stamps on them. Yeah, did you use a pen? Yeah, exactly, well yes. I would write her five and six times a day, and she would write okay. me five or six. Okay. Her parents would just shake their heads going, what's going on here? Mm. They knew it wasn't good. So you were smitten. Yeah, I was smitten, and we've been smited ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's great to hear. Tell us what's the best and also the hardest thing about being married for this length of time. Um, well, the best thing about this is that you can sit in a room and be quiet and everything be okay. So that's, nice. that's the best thing. Uh, the hardest thing is you know each other way too well. <laughs> everything. You know, the best, uh, the worst. You know each other way too well. And the trick is to stay patient. Mm. To stay patient with someone who you know how they're going to react. You, you do something and you know I know that's not good. <laughs> the next 24 hours will be tough, you know, <laughs> and uh, that kind of thing. But to stay patient with understanding one another. And the other thing that I think is really, 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 really important is one, to seek forgiveness mm. and two, to be quick to offer it. Because, mm. you know, when you're around someone that constantly, it can be a challenge because there are times when you're not your best and you do poorly, and you need to be given some slack. And sometimes you don't need to be given some slack and need to be reminded that you don't need to be given some slack for that. And so it's the patience part of it. I think that's a key to a good marriage is your ability to forgive when your partner is not at his or her best. When you said the hardest thing is, you know, you know each other so well. And yet the flip side of that is there's something wonderful about someone still loving you, even though they do know you that well. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and if you've built enough trust, you understand that. And even when the diplomatic languages, the two parties met and had constructive conversations <laughs> with one another, but no real progress was made, you know, uh, yeah. there's something about that relational trust that's underneath that, that is able to sustain you in the midst of your negotiations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you ever receive good advice about marriage when you were younger or... If not, have you come to understand some good advice for people? I think the best piece of advice 
um, that I got about marriage was when someone said to me, learn to be a good listener. Or I'll say it this way. You know, the Bible says that you become one flesh when you marry your spouse. So when you're in a conversation that's difficult, don't think about it being you against her or her against him. But think about you're hearing a part of yourself come back at you. Mm-hmm. I think that'll change the way you actually interact in the conversation. That your sense of your bond is that tightly connected that you don't think of your spouse as the other or the competitor or someone you're competing to have exercise power with or something like that, but actually a part of who you are as a team. That can cover a multitude of tension. Hang on, though. This is interesting because this one flesh stuff sounds like really beautiful advice, but it does seem the opposite of what Lisa said about how important it is to remember that the other person is separate from you. Yes, I noticed this too. Um, I don't know if, like, can both be true? I want to say that they're both right. I thought I would ask Lisa to clarify. I mean, obviously seeing the other person as the other in the sense of someone I'm having a battle with or a war with or they're on the other side is not helpful. But I think what I'm talking about is the over-familiarity where you start to lose this idea that the other person is a distinct and a unique image of God-bearer that I can't treat poorly And it depends what counselling framework you use. Because I use this family systems framework, we often talk about this fusion, which we see as when you lose your boundaries, you you end up with, we call it a leaky self, like you're not being respectful of the other person or wondering, gosh, I wonder why you just think of them as too much an extension of yourself. Most truths in life are paradoxes, aren't they, where you have to hold two opposites or you're sitting in tensions. Okay, back to Daryl. Have you ever seen a marriage that you thought was completely on the rocks and it made a really good recovery? Hmm, that's a good question. Yes, now I think about it. It's a family member whose marriage was so on the rocks got a divorce. Pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty poor. Five years later, remarried. Oh, same person. Really? Now happily married. Oh, that's a good So story. that's about as U-turn as you can get. Mm, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Are there things about your faith, yours and Sally's faith, that has helped in your marriage? Yeah, I think it helps us in our worst moments because it reminds us that it's not about me, nor is it about her. It's about us and it's about him. And so when your marriage is not a partnership of two, but a partnership of three, that keeps you each accountable, not just to each other. And lastly, we have a colleague about to get married. What would you say to someone like her as she approaches the big day? Um, You get married, and then sometime right after you get married, you wake up and you go, I have now committed to be with this person for life. And then your next reaction is, (laughs) (laughs) don't be surprised you have that reaction it's a perfectly normal reaction it's just hit you the commitment that you've made Mm. and then rejoice in the potential of what you have and the potential of where god may take you and so enter into the other side of the screen and in the midst of that rest in knowing that your nervousness about what it is that you've taken on is actually healthy because you realize there's an awful lot at stake in this union. 
Well, Daryl's been married for 46 years, Lisa for 30, Simon and Justine. I don't know, how, how many years are you guys on? 24 for me. Oh. 11 for me. Okay, I think that... Am I am I am doing this math? I think it's 111 years of marriage <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> so, so that's that's quite a lot of marriage experience over a century. Before we round things up here, then, do you guys have any advice for me from your own experience before I go and do this thing? Well, mine involves homework, which um, <laughs> probably no one will love that. But remember that Lisa Tadeo article in the New York Times Mm. on love languages, right? Like she initially thinks, oh, it's astrology for married people. But then she starts to say that, well, this love language stuff really acknowledges that people have different ways of communicating. So understanding how differently we communicate is a really important thing. So this is from that 90s book, The Five Love. Oh, yeah, The Five Love Languages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. But I thought that Bron would benefit from... Um, that article, especially where the husband, she talks about her own husband, says to Lisa, my whole life is an act of service to you. And if you just have that highlighted Mm. and give that to him, I think it would be (laughs) lovely. And I think it's even more beautiful because I think he already believes that, right? And he's not even going to read this article and go, oh, this is another act of service that I'm begrudgingly giving you. Like he will happily do it. So that's my advice for him. My advice for you may feel like a form of projecting because it might assume that you are as petty and resentful as I am. (laughs) Oh, I definitely am. Yeah. (laughs) Assume away. Um, It's also um, from the Lisa Tadeo article where she quotes her husband saying to her, you can't justifiably punish me for the sins of all men, which Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that felt really real Mm -hmm. and felt really true. And look, Simon's nodding here. (laughs) (laughs) All I want to say is that there are words that hurt And that there are words that sting, but they sting for our own good and for the good of the relationship. And knowing the difference between the two is actually really helpful because it means that if your husband says something like that to you, you're going to let that medicine go down, right? Mm. You're not just going to be angry and be defensive about it. So, yeah, trying to understand the difference between the words that hurt and the words that sting I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Okay. Can I clarify? So the words that hurt are the bad ones. Yes. And stinging yes, is good and hurting words. is good. Okay. <laughs> That's right. So the sting might also hurt a little bit, but they're kind of... Constructive. It's constructive hurt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Simon, what about you? 24 years. 24 years. Uh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. good, isn't it? Um, you talked at the beginning about some negativity that floats around when it comes to marriage. So... My first bit of advice is just to put that aside and jump off that bridge and with great enthusiasm because you know, <laughs> we're all cheering you on here Aww. and uh, that's a jump worth taking. I would say have an attitude from the beginning of, you know, I'm not going to give up in difficult times because you will have difficult times. We can kind of promise that. But having that approach from the beginning, I think, sets people up well. I'd be thinking about uh, being intentional about serving the other person. I think it's good if both of you do that, not just one of you. Uh, and find <laughs> well, out he how definitely to, serves me. It's <laughs> me that needs to work. Find out how to do that well because it's different. You know, people are different. You do learn a lot about yourself in marriage too. So be prepared A little bit for too that. much. A little yeah. bit too much. <laughs> it sounds terrifying. Uh, but, but, you know, it's good, right? It's good. That can be good too. And then lastly, because you know, I could go on and on here for a long time, uh, but – 
a lens of generosity in interpreting the other person. Because there's, there's different ways you can view people's actions because we're not always going to be at our best, but sort of a generous approach to that, I think, helps. And I, I say all this with a caveat of, you know, I'm not pretending I get this all these things right either, but at our best moments, I think they really contribute to a really great relationship. So love and kindness in that lens with which you view mm. each other, even when you don't feel like it. Thanks, guys. This has been Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, Justin Toe, and bride-to-be Natasha Moore. We're giving out lots of advice this week, but we want to thank Lisa Aitken and Daryl Bock for sharing their wisdom and experience with us. Yeah, and if this episode has twigged something for you and you're wanting some help to address something in your relationships, uh, it might be marriage, but not necessarily, the Relationships Australia website is a good place to start. They've got support services for individuals, families, uh, as well as communities across the country. And if this episode has reminded us of anything, it's that we could all use a bit of help to build and keep good relationships. So check them out at relationships.org.au. If you appreciated this episode, do share it with someone you know, maybe your spouse, uh, in a way that's not terribly pointed, I guess. Uh, and do take the plunge and follow us in whatever ways work for you. Subscribe to the podcast, follow CPX on social media, uh, and you can email us, remember, with feedback. The address for that is podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week. Where we're going... How we should shape society depends on our sense of who we are, what we value, and our sense of identity and value and purpose like that is invariably predicated on where we've come from. Those societies that have sought to forget the past and rewrite the future, as many did in the 20th century, tend to do so at significant human costs.